0: Hey guys, Blaine from DTC Pod here and I've got something you're going to like. So if you're anything like us, bringing highly talented VAs or virtual assistants into your operations and workflows is a big part of running a business, Uh, but oftentimes the hardest part is sourcing and vetting talent, especially at an affordable rate. And that's where more now comes in. They source and match you with top talent from the Philippines across finance, supply chain, operations, marketing, and whatever else you may need. And the best part is they're super cost-effective and back their talent with a 12-month guarantee. So go to morenow.co or check the link I'm dropping in the show notes to learn more about More Now and start offloading some of the most tedious tasks off your plate. We've had a bunch of success working with them and their VAs in our workflows, so excited for you guys to check them out. So before we kick off today's recording, I've got one more for you. Keeping up your momentum this year starts with the right selling tools. And if you're looking to increase revenue, grow faster, build more pipeline, and close more deals, check out the all new sales hub from HubSpot. You'll be able to manage your whole sales process, plus my favorite part, the reporting. It's super intuitive, powerful, and customizable. Plus, the whole thing is powered by AI so your teams can spend less time on tedious time-consuming stuff and more time on developing relationships. Also no one likes a clunky platform that takes months to onboard onto, but getting set up on sales hub is really quick and easy. It's free to get started, the pricing will scale with your business, and with more than 1,300 integrations and add-ons, you can tune it to your exact needs. Visit HubSpot.com slash sales to start selling with Sales Hub. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Rick and Diwan, who is the CMO uh, and Chief Growth Officer at Suna. So Rick, and I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself your background, um, you know, maybe some of the stuff you're working on before, and and kind of what you do on a day to day basis.
1: Yeah, hey Blaine and hey Ramon, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, my name's Rickon. I am currently Chief Growth Officer at Suna, um, and I know you guys had Liz on the pod, so I won't go deep into Suna. But we're a basically a content and creative studio for e-commerce brands. So ship us your products. We capture it on photo, video, or it gets sent to a UGC creator with a friend, as Ramon, and you know we're working with over twenty thousand brands now producing content. We've been around for about four years, so we can go a lot more into that. My career has been, I think, in like I think of it as two phases, and it's always been marketing. It's always been heavily digital. The first phase, though, was like skill stacking. Marketing is extremely bifurcated, and like people talk about what is. But chief growth officer versus a chief marketing officer. There's awareness and brand, and then there's performance in the data side. And I realized like in my career, you can never get that exposure all at once. You kind of have to, or at least for me, I felt like every two, three years, I feel comfortable. That's not good, that's not a good feeling, let me move on. So I started in New York and it's been kind of a tale of being media, being agency side, uh, stay in agency side for probably longer than I wanted to. Um, and, you know, learn in that process, advertising, um, you know, web traffic and things like that, learn branding, learn social, learn content. And then I went into tech. When I went into tech, I was pretty much a product marketer. Um, my first real stint in tech, uh, was at Foursquare. So the check-in app, um, so I was there for about three years, mainly doing product marketing. Um, and Foursquare was going through quite a bit of a change, um, turning from kind of, a an in-app like advertising-supported social app to like a data play that was going to power other apps and power advertising technology. That was mostly what my focus was: was like, how does you work with product, what's coming out, translate that to mainly for a sales team and a BD team. No longer like translate that for customers. Um, at the end of that, I kind of look back and I'm like, all right, well now I've done a little bit of everything. I'm pretty good at some stuff. I know what I enjoy the most. Uh, and who's gonna be kind of like dumb enough to take a bet and make me like a head of marketing. Um, But I was really lucky in that I had known a guy named Ryan. Um, He had founded a company in the bike share space of all things. Um, And he called me up and he's like Rick and like, we're gonna change everything. And I have this electric bike and I went to Brooklyn and I rode this electric bike. And I'm like, this is amazing. Um, And I joined them as a VP of marketing, started running marketing, but this is like, a thousand square feet with a shitty coffee pot and just me as the marketer like that's all we had um raised a series a uh but about 90 percent of that money went to hardware producing bikes in china and very little left over um but that company was called social bicycles when i joined i rebranded it with the team to a company called jump we quickly launched pilot programs in sf and dc And we caught kind of the eyes of Uber and then Uber ended up acquiring us just like six months later. So it was like quite a ride. And then I jumped into Uber where for the next or a little over a year, we just scaled insanely fast. My team went from me to 40 marketers globally, um, kind of figuring out how do I navigate Uber. We were in 35 global markets now um, with our bikes, then we launched scooters. And so if you've ever ridden the bright red one, that was a jump bike. We were in like LA. I think we were in Miami. Um, but now that company then got divested um out of Uber and became Line or join Line. And so now if you've ever seen the white and green line bikes and lime scooters, that's the jump bike. Um, you know, and it was a great experience for me because from joining a company, being the only person in marketing, limited funding to getting acquired, Uber IPO'd in that time that I was there and our bike was like on Wall Street on the floor part of the story and then being told we're divesting the business and all of you are out like everything we experienced in two years was what I think most startups think they might go through in 20 years um I got a lot of gray hairs and and sleepless nights and had kids in that time period too um but yeah I left and um and then when I left I kind of I knew I wanted to be startup and I felt like jump by what it wasn't a startup for long enough for me. And I came back to early stage startups again. Um, I've never been one to love an industry necessarily. I found an insurtech. I went to that insure tech, learned a lot about insurance doesn't sound sexy, but actually as a marketer, there are some really interesting parts where like insurance is a massive SEO play. It's a massive like Google play. And I really like learned that. And I think what I realized there is like, I like this kind of marketing. Like, I could pull this lever and show my impact on the business and be really close with like finance and, you know, our budget and modeling and forecasting. And so, and it is B2B and it was SaaS. And so I really enjoyed that. And then Suna came knocking and essentially Suna is still B2B. I like to say we're a lowercase B2B in the sense that like our end customers are awesome. They're merchants, they're brands, they're someone. Starting on Shopify, or they're the big ones too, um, but it's just much more fun. Like we get to, you know, it's not an enterprise product, so we get to have fun with it. Um, and yeah, been at Suna ever since, and we got some exciting things in the works that um, we're announcing and building the team here. But, but that's me in a in a nutshell.
0: Well, that's awesome, um, Rick and I'd love to kind of go a little bit deeper on the whole Uber experience and that transition. What was it like in terms of? Like, what were the responsibilities? What were you trying to convey? What were the challenges of, like, marketing the product? And how did you kind of tackle and tell that story through through content?
1: Yeah. Um, well, content was a big part of it and one that we did really well. Um, when you have a hardware product that is, like, gorgeous and fun, like an electric bike, um, it's not hard to create, like, good content around that. Um, and so we would uh, – we actually built – well – I'll talk about it in another way. When we joined Uber, um, it was just me. So now I have to figure out what kind of org structure do I need? And I, I need to start thinking, well, what types of goals do we have? And you know, what are the objectives and the challenges that the business is facing? So where could marketing plug in? And there's kind of like two main areas now as a marketing, um, like as I'm s- someone in marketing responsible for marketing. The easy one is actually awareness, which is kind of, funny because most brands have the hardest time getting awareness we have bright red bicycles that we get to drop on the street and it's like you're out of home billboard super easy you know the next day that we're in town when you see everyone riding around on this bike with your logo so awareness isn't my challenge and i don't need to put most of my paid budget into like awareness that there is a thing called the bike uh bike share program what was the challenge is how do you figure out how to get an uber rider in the uber app to move out of the screen that shows cars and shows bikes instead and present that in an exciting way um and you know as a as an efficient mode of transportation and then the unique one with bike share is the cities give you a permit to be in every city and they almost control your supply too you can't deploy more more bikes or scooters if you want to but the biggest thing at that time and everyone listening to this knows is Safety and these bikes and scooters are all over the sidewalk, like almost like litter, like we have to meet certain demands of the city to show people how to ride safely. Um, And, you know, as a marketer, you're like, but it's electric and I don't want to talk about how fast they go, but you actually have to kind of build that behavior. So we use content a lot for both of those things, like both educating the Uber rider, like why this bike is going to be awesome for you instead of a car or in different situations than a car. And then also, just like meeting our guidance with the city to make sure that, w- and we would do events and bike rides and do a ton of content. Um, but yeah, content was a huge part. I had an in house team because content was so important. I knew the clip of content was going to be super fast. And so I had an in house team um, and they were amazing. And we would send them around the whole world shooting content. Um, and this and was, was a before, ton of
2: fun. this was before that, then like, Hiring content creators was really like a thing thing, right? Um, what what year was this? Oh, like God. what did content um, mean in that era? Video. Lots yeah. of video and photography. My, was it paid marketing?
1: And then we'd push it with paid marketing. Uh, we push it. in fact, we like we worked with 368, which is Casey Neistat's company. We we gave Casey a bike and had him ride it and keep it at his place in New York. And when he went to think it was atlanta at one point he rode our bike and you know captured a very casey story um and then actually 368 has a creator network as well and so one of them produced our safety video because we're like we don't want our safety video to be boring so they did such a phenomenal job but our in-house team yeah it's it's rare it's a luxury a little bit to have an in-house team and and warrant you know um that on your payroll essentially but we just knew it was super important to to share this
2: And what was the marketing strategy prior to joining Uber? Was this it? Oh, prior to ordering...
1: Because you're always dictated by winning a city permit. So that part was really tough. Um, But really the strategy, even at that time, was more on the pricing retention side of it. How can you get these guys to ride your bike once and then be sticky as a customer? Again, like you have the bike on the street. In fact, the best way to push a promo... In a b2b SaaS world there's like email right or like a modal window on a website in this world it's take a vinyl hire an operations team and have the bike wrapped with the promo on the basket like that's your that's your impression right and so um i mean it was a luxury too because we were like owning a movable billboard uh in that sense but we had to kind of think physical as well as digital. And then the digital takes over and it's like retention and loyalty. But honestly, that portion of it was so short-lived because of Uber. And then the challenges or opportunity
2: with Uber, you know, immediately kicked in. Well, it worked. Um, it worked too fast. Um, yeah, it, it what, did. What's interesting is like every business has unique like dynamics and advantages for promotion that are non-traditional, probably non-traditional ways of marketing um like you mentioned on the insurance with the seo there are certain traits because like a lot of marketers talk about playbooks right but like often the marketing strategies with the bigger like out biggest outlier like results are the ones that are not a playbook and that your business has a unique sort of component to it that you can pull off this strategy um nobody else is really doing um and so i wonder you know you, you probably look for those by instinct within all the businesses you operate.
1: Yeah, I think, well, I think what I look for in a company, like even in the interview phase, is like, is this product inherently disruptive? Because if it is, then that is the story, you know, that I just need to put impressions behind. I like very disruptive products. Personally, the challenge with that is you're taking a bet that that disruption and that, which normally is a different business model, is like effective to the point where VCs want to put money behind it or, you know, it can scale in a a way that um, makes sense a path to profitability or a path to just infinite kind of supply of VC money. So that's always the risk you take. And I mean, even with the insurance company, that, for example, they are the only company, it's called Thimble, it's still around, it's awesome. Um, They're the only company that can do business insurance down to the hour. So, if you're like a wedding photographer, instead of buying an annual insurance policy, you can go in an app, buy four hours of insurance. You could actually charge your client to pay for the insurance because it's the venue that requires the insurance. And so, I just love that. Like, they filed this regulatory filing, and I'm like, it's weird. It's insurance, but I just thought that was super interesting. And as a marketer, like, we had Red Antler do the branding. Like, it's not boring in any way is that challenge and even at sooner we're the only company that you could ship this product to and come on our site and build a shoot and you know i'd been on the other side of that i'd spent thousands of dollars for a photo shoot and now it's like a simple um you know kind of a simple pricing model um that can scale globally because we have this virtual shoot and so i'm kind of a masochist and then i love that disruptive thing but it is a hard challenge um, but to your point then, okay, so that's kind of not a playbook, right? Like that's part of my thing. I still think, especially now that I've found a groove of B2B SaaS, there are definitely playbooks, um, and you need to build those. But I think marketing teams every quarter, if they can, but definitely every six months, we need to take a swing. And typically that's like, who is this brand? What do we stand for? And what do we want to say that might have some type of unattributable outsized, Kind of benefit and if you yeah i mean uh, those are hard but you know you, i think you have to find time and you're planning to fit yeah. those
2: in you mentioned it's challenging and it's challenging because sometimes like these businesses require like a education curve for the consumer i'm curious you know at the same time not this like you can implement the playbook but the way you integrate the strategies into the business themselves can be the differentiator right like People marketers operate in different ways, so marketers all want to implement four playbooks at the same time. One might want to sprint on a specific thing. When you come into a business, how do you how do you assess or audit? You know, Thimble is SEO, um, Asuna XX, and how do you assess the best marketing opportunity for the business?
1: Uh, well, I think now I'm better at it. And now that I focus on B2B SaaS, like I could speak to that. Uh, yeah, I've actually never been in an e-commerce company, even though this is a D2C pod. And I mean, to me, the thing, if I were to be in a D2C e-commerce company, it wouldn't be the marketing because it's mainly Facebook marketing typically at that point until you retail, but it would be like supply chain. Like I don't know how to market and like scale that marketing up and down as your supply of product or when the new hardware product's coming. It's going to happen. That would be the challenge there. And I don't think I could do it or honestly like would accept anything there in the future. In B2B and many other products, I actually think, and you guys kind of talked about like in the beginning of like, what is it like being a CMO? Like, I actually think you have to know your finance, like side of the business really well. Like, and you have to know how the product is priced and packaged and how that then impacts how you're going to acquire a customer. And it, it honestly, it just goes back to like, is this a product led motion or a sales led motion, or is it both or a mix of both? And then what kind of resources do you have? Cause like in a product led motion where you're going to click a button, go through a funnel and transact at the end of that funnel, it's kind of closer to e-commerce where it's a CAC, AOV, AFOV, LTV thing. And then in a sales led motion, it's like, I got to get an MQL and I got to convert that to an SQL and where do I get all these from? And like, do I have a CRM system and an SDR? And, And I've had some really good conversations recently with some other CMOs of like, where do you put the SDR? Like, is the SDR in marketing or are they in sales? And you know, what's, is it an agency or the stack? Like that's always a challenge, but like, it sounds unsexy. But the right play for me is like looking at the business itself, you know, and then being like, all right, where's where's growth going to happen? Because that changes the channel or that changes the team that you need. Uh, yeah, not, not the yeah. most glittery, sparkly of answer, but I, I think that's fundamental.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, Rickon, uh, just to elaborate a little bit more there. I think one thing every marketer sort of thinks about or struggles with, it's like, where am I allocating my budget, right? You've got limited budget. You've always want more. You're obviously going to understand the unit economics of the product and the type of motion that your business is running. But like, when you think about it, is it as simple as, let me just find the best performing channel and dumping in budget there so long as it all checks out? Or is it more thinking in broader strokes and like balancing a budget across, um, you know, multiple different uh, areas of the business?
1: Yeah, I mean, most of your budget is going to be an acquisition budget i think um where i am earlier stage companies b2b SaaS performance is obviously the underpinning part like at uber the budget was something like 50 million dollars and a lot of it was like brand and awareness it's very different like we had out of home billboards and we were throwing events and you know we did paid but it's it's very different um now though like I believe performance dollars for our business is the awareness. Like you're going to gain awareness by being in Facebook and Google and out in the front. I think what happens is your acquisition mix. At a certain point, you start to feel like this isn't good enough, right? And you're like, or like every dollar I'm putting into Facebook, diminishing return. And luckily there are playbooks. Like I don't know if 10 years ago there were playbooks on this because it was so different. But now you're kind of like, Wait a second. They have a cool agency program, or they have a partnership that's crushing it. Um, and that part's actually really hard. Like, I, I'm that part is so relationship driven, and um, it's like BD at this point. And you know, why do they want to sell you, right? Why? Why do like? Yeah, maybe you can give them some referral revenue, but what else is it adding value to their business? And so, in the world I'm in right now, and even at Symbol, because at Symbol. The other challenge was there's these weird aggregators that basically arbitrage the SEO. Um, So for example, like Policy Genius in the insurance space, it's like an Expedia for insurance policies, but they're bidding on your word that you want to go after, capturing the lead and then selling it back to you. And you're like, you assholes, like you're bidding on the same word I'm bidding. And when I give you money, you spend more money on the same word. So my CPCs are going up. And then they, well, the way they give it back to you is over the phone. So now you need a sales team. And you're like, wait, I didn't have a sales team. I just had a product funnel. But at a certain point, if you don't do it, they're going to do it, right? Somebody else is going to do it and take that lead away from you. So it's like, it's always about finding more TAM, basically. And at some point, I don't think Facebook and Google are it. And then, I mean, I think in the D2C world, they've realized this recently as well. Like, you just can't only scale a meta budget you know like you have to have some retail presence or be a, a broader distribution
2: um so which is yeah. where creators come into play too and being such a big distribution channel and it's wild that like the platforms themselves haven't like never really nailed it um you you think that oh the tiktok creator marketplace is is there and they're gonna own it but you know the end yeah for for sure
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally glad they haven't. And what's awesome is that there's a creator for every niche. Like, you know, just the other day I was like, who are the CFOs in the D2C space on Twitter? And like, I got four and I'm like, these are amazing people. Like, is Ramp, you know, is Ramp going to go make them an affiliate? Probably. Um, But like, I love that there's a,
2: the creator space. I don't know if I've cracked it yet to be honest though. Um, Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the, It's also really, it's like relationship based as well. Like, you know, whether you're using something like trend, you are engaging one-on-one with that person and you are sort of building that relationship in a way where the creator has to like your product and they have to like working for your company as well, or like, you know, repping it. And they have to really understand the product to even extract the messaging that you might have not even thought of. Yeah. um that that will end up in a really successful campaign so like in a way that's also a marketing strategy that um does the it sort of like has a byproduct benefit um of like new copy angles things you didn't think about being able to use your creative um for performance but how do you think about creators as like from a performance basis like talking about this financial angle um how should brands be thinking about working with creators when budgeting?
1: Um, it depends on stage. I think at first you can tiptoe it into it with a performance mindset. You can set up like an affiliate kind of approach to it and only want to pay out when the referral that's completely like down to the click sent to you. Um, but I think after a while you have to understand that some of this is awareness and some of this is performance based uh and take it from there like i don't think that it's going to scale with just performance you're going to have to take some bets every once in a while on that and then to your point too like you can't be transactional because it's still a it's a person not a website or a platform on the other side of it and so you know obviously they want to get paid out so there's a transaction involved um but like you have to figure out how to almost build a relationship with them a rapport with them, um, gear your brand around that too. Um, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's not an easy thing and that's not necessarily something where it's going to come that transition because you're going to hire this growth team. They're all going to be like data analysts and channel managers, and then be like, you can't tell them to go build the relationship side with a, an affiliate thing. So. I think that's kind of where it becomes difficult.
2: But from a content perspective, it's a no brainer. Like as yeah. as using creators for the content of your performance, the UGC yeah. and all of that content, I'm curious how you implement, like not enough brands are doing it. Not enough brands have a full UGC library, constantly churning out content, different concepts, mm-hmm. different ideas, different messaging, different seasons, targeting different demographics. How should brands be thinking about producing content? How do you even implement it? Because, you know, having Trend and Suna, you guys use your own content for for your performance marketing. Yeah. But our best performing asset right now is one of our customers who tweeted something
1: and me taking that and and putting that in a screenshot.
2: Like, it
1: doesn't even have the product photography. Like, we're selling product photography, but that tweet, like screenshot of a tweet is doing better. Um, And, you know, when... It started to do better we actually went deeper with them like they had a newsletter and they have their own channel uh and so like we're in with them like it and it's funny how d2c has done it i think it's a little bit unspoken but a lot of these d2c operators are pretty tied to the stack in the company on the other side um it feels pretty taboo to talk about how much that is happening right now but um i think both sides the the b2b SaaS of e-commerce and the d2c side have learned that there's a a social proof you know game here to be played and b2b SaaS doesn't want to be boring anymore and brand actually does help quite a lot and so yeah i think in terms of like quantity of content it's actually interesting as soon as different we produce we take millions of photos so we have lots of a big bank of photos we have ugc creators that we could put out in front but For most brands, they actually kind of only have a certain number of hero assets like that they typically shoot for Amazon and Shopify. And then I think the quantity underneath that, though, needs to be so much more and so much faster. Um, You know, Taylor Holiday of um, Common Thread Collective tweeted the other day like that volume of creator, creative, that's your biggest leverage. Like what that's going to get you that outsized bet because that creative was distinct and had a different message. And I actually think using the voice of somebody else though is a good way to do that for your brand versus you trying to say something different about your brand. And sometimes those creators, if you listen hard enough, the way they talk about your brand is resonates better than what your value prop on your own site might even say. Like we need to learn from how are others talking about our brand. So yeah, I think I um, think creator content is um probably even looking ahead where most of our budget is is going like how do you turn this thing that was like a boring case study into something that can be used like and spliced and cut and and amplified
0: we are really excited to announce that dtc pod is officially part of the hubspot podcast network the hubspot podcast network is the audio destination for business professionals And we're really excited about being part of the network because we're going to be able to keep growing the show, bringing you guys amazing guests, and obviously helping you guys learn from the best founders, marketers, and builders of the most successful consumer brands. So anyway, keep listening to DTC Pod and more shows like us on the HubSpot Podcast Network at HubSpot.com slash podcast network. Rick and I also want to ask about that because i think another problem that like i've seen in when i'm in the marketing seat it's like i want to invest in content right and i want to be putting it out and i have all these different channels but every campaign's a little bit different markets are changing you're trying to figure out what to do so how do you go from like you know ideation of like how much of budget you should be like putting into working with creators to like get new content and then reconciling that with like, okay, now that I have that content, where is it going? Because like you're saying, obviously you can you know put some of it on Facebook, Google, um, whatever. But like, I guess, yeah, how, if you could just talk to us a little bit about that interplay between like the creative direction in terms of saying I'm, you know, buying this much content, but then also knowing on the back end where as a marketer you're pushing it out to get the best ROI on that content that you produce.
1: Yeah. Well, first, I think you need a, a team that understands this so that when they are storyboarding this, like with a creator or by themselves or with a freelancer, like they are thinking this through. They know that this one piece of content is going to be 30 seconds on the site, seven seconds on TikTok, you know, and spread out in many different ways. Like, like that's how you have to, you know, stretch your budget in a, further than it can really go. Um, I think there's, Somewhere there's a ratio of if this is your paid spend, this is how much you should be spending on that content underneath. And I probably would say it's somewhere between five and 10%. I think after a certain point, you're going to say, I'm spending 10 million. I'm not spending 1 million on content. Um, But I think, you know, there's, it's probably healthy in that above the line, below the line mix. And now if you're smart, that 5% is also helping SEO, right? Like our word is product photography. Do a video and make that title product photography on YouTube and try to be in the video SEO game as well. I mean, I think like think it through, but you need much stronger content strategists these days who kind of know how these channels like are interplaying and then could think of a storyboard that can be like adapted. Um, But yeah, I I think that's... um, And there's some really interesting tools out there these days that are cutting video in new ways. And I think video is the biggest thing, right? Like at the end of the day, UGC and your own video, it's expensive. Um, UGC cuts that and gets you volume in a way. Um, And then if it works, what I would actually do is whitelist it and try to put the paid money further behind it and, and keep going. But yeah.
0: Yeah, I'd love to... Why don't we talk a little bit about whitelisting and SEO? They kind of sometimes go hand in hand. So you've got like once you've concepted an idea, um, you know, maybe there's a couple ways to make that content go a little bit further. So do you want to just explain, um, go a little bit deeper of what you were talking about, about how you bridge the gap between like content strategy and turning that into materials that you can use for both SEO and potentially whitelisting?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like... It's a that would be a tough bridge. I, w- I wouldn't say there's a playbook around that one. I would say like in in B two B SaaS especially, you need to know SEO really well. I, I think where D two C is a little bit more Facebook and Meta, B two B SaaS like you have to start on Google. Um, if you're using Facebook, it probably means that the solution you've made people don't aren't actively looking for, right? And so you've come up with something unique, which maybe is awesome for your business, but probably very difficult. Um, But on the SEO side, I think it's quite clear to see that YouTube is probably the stickiest of platforms, I think, like even just personally, that rabbit hole you can go down and now with stories too. So I think like that play of like my long format video and then my short format video now can work together in the same kind of medium. And then that short format can work on TikTok and Instagram. Now, obviously you're gonna have to do like a ton of SEO research first. And the SEO world doesn't even talk about video optimization as much as content or like nowadays it's the whole AI game of SEO um, as well that everyone's trying to figure out. But um, yeah, I think they're blurring pretty fast.
2: I think um, yeah, I think YouTube is insanely interesting for DTC brands. We had um we had a dog company, dog food company called um, Sun- Sundays. Yeah, dog food. They don't sell dogs. Uh, no, Sundays, <laughs> um, on the podcast, and they've just their entire creator play is around YouTube, and um, it's crushing for them. So, um, I think the one thing Blaine was referring to though on the white listing and the SEO, I think Blaine, you were referring more to like listicles of like, there's these like publications and they do listicles and then you run ads behind those publications that seem more in the DTC space. I don't think B2B SaaS does that um, or B2B in general, but is that what you were referring to Blaine? Yeah, that's, that's
0: what I was referring to. I've seen it a bunch in, you know, in DTC, whether you come up with uh, a, a listicle or a different content piece and then you know uh you can run it in collaboration with an influencer and link the CTA to you know like run it from a blog's page in collaboration with the influencer so you're kind of like the third party involved um i haven't seen it as much in b2b i'm i'm sure it could be applied to b2b i obviously just haven't um seen it as much but i i just feel like i guess where i was talking about the overlap between seo and whitelisting is like when you're coming up with a content idea and you're creating a piece of content that could rank for that intent or whatever, a lot of times these types of content end up on blogs as well, where you can also go ahead and and whitelist them.
1: It's super smart on something. I mean, you're blurring the lines of like, are you whitelisting, which is typically like putting paid behind a creator's content versus just sponsoring because them putting out something, like if you designed it, where you had somebody else put it out and make sure that their title description, like don't give them too much direction, but like be like, look, like I want this video to rank for something specific. Like if you put that research into the design and then they have that subscriber base because that's kind of where um, you're missing as a brand. You're just not going to have a massive subscriber base. Um, I think like that's where it's almost like in the SEO equivalent, it's like domain authority. You know, it's like they just have more domain authority, but on a different platform because each video is going to get more reach and then make them optimize for an SEO chart. Honestly, well, that's probably an arbitrage play I just haven't done yet. Um, but yeah, you probably got uh, you got my mind kind of thinking we should probably think about some things there.
0: But yeah. Yeah. I, and and one thing that you, you just mentioned that I think is applicable to direct-to-consumer brands as well as B2B, it's just... it's just in general the state of seo with all like the ai content right like i know Mm -hmm. google pushed out a massive update in october that you know that really just changed how everyone's ranking it's putting a lot more focus on authority and who wrote the content and it being real and authentic so yeah um is that something that you've seen on your side how are you thinking about seo now with um some of the updates that you've been seeing and a bunch of other people probably spamming google for about a year now with a bunch of uh gpt written well what's stuff.
1: funny is i was talking to somebody yesterday he's like i gotta be real like i put a site out with all gpt content and it's doing fine so i have heard that luckily Suna, we haven't seen anything the sites i'm looking at I haven't seen anything i had a side project where i was like creating everything in koala writer which like does all the writing then you your workflow is like take all that content put it in surfer seo make sure it ranks like at a certain score surfer has that prior proprietary score um that site like all the ai things went to shit like it just not picking up but it's like domain authority zero so i don't know i think some people might be getting away with it some people aren't it's hard to see what google's doing um what's cool though is like ai definitely has a place here if anything google's probably gone over on penalizing AI created content when they're like looking, was it created or not? I think there's some room there's definitely, you know, I was doing it myself on a guitar website of all things. I was like, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and see if I can figure it out. It's first graph that it spits out inspired me to write a better article than I would have with a blank slate. That's how I kind of think about it. But if you don't add that human editing, you're... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it will rank temporarily, but I don't think you're going to build something awesome with it. And I think you're definitely not going to build something where you have a site, a newsletter, a community that follows it, social channels that are active. And I think that's the best way in the SEO game because anyone who just saw this tank realized that they don't have any other sources of traffic. They were just trying to play the Google game. And it works for a while, but now you're, you're too invested in one platform. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's some really cool tools, Um, yeah, you know, even creating images for blog posts and things like that is going to be awesome. Or even, you know, thinking speech to text and all this like fun stuff you could do. Like, uh, I think there's so much content. Why not see it in different mediums quickly? Um, so, yeah, we'll see where that one all goes. Um, but uh, I will, will say what I don't think is happening is I don't think ChatGPT is killing Search. Yeah, and I think a lot of people thought it would, but I, I yeah. don't think we've seen that at all.
0: Right. And I think search, they're just different experiences, right? Because, like, if you're asking for an answer from ChatGPT, it's almost like playing the I'm feeling lucky game with Google, right? Like, you're probably going to get an answer. It's probably going to be good. And a lot of times, it'll probably be better than Google. But there's something about the browsing experience that, like, people fi- find nice. And actually, I was thinking a lot about it recently in terms of SEO. It's like, I feel like Google pushed this update out, which, you know, might penalize some AI generated content, but I, I don't think they're done pushing updates in regards to how they're treating AI content. Cause if you actually look and you're Googling content, like the there's probably been a great improvement in in general content that's out there. I just don't think Google has like parsed through it yet, it has the data on how people are like actually spending time yeah. on different pages understanding what's going on. Um and even on the sites that I manage, I'm seeing massive swings all the time. Like I have pages that, like in one month, will be doing like 2,000 uh, hits a month just on a single page, and then the next month it'll go down to 100, and then the next month. So like it just seems like in the background, Google's like just figuring out like what to do. I mean, the, maybe this is optimistic.
1: What I hope Google's doing is like deranking you, ranking someone else up, and seeing if that is better. Than what you had, what you had posted, and then switching, course correcting. Maybe that's what we're told it kind of does, but and that's what I hope it does. But you know, and that's how they can measure value. So, yeah, I think you will see those this roller coaster. Um, we've been seeing some really good stuff. We're building a lot of AI tools um, here at Suna, and the search volume trend for AI tools is spiking. So, um, yeah, I think we're pretty excited by that part of it. But yeah.
2: Yeah, I want to. I want to get into that too. I think you know one of the one of the most important things you said is like you can build a website with all this AI content, but you're not going to have a community. And like from my own experience, I've grown Instagram accounts with like a bunch of followers, hundreds of thousands, repurposing content, and it is not like it, you cannot develop those 1,000 true fans. That cult following is just not possible. And yeah. so if we take this conversation to like the visual content side of things, the the golden question for companies like Trend and Suna is like, well, is AI content going to replace the photographers and the content creators? And it's like, it's the same principle applies, right? Yeah. Like think of a brand whose content is entirely AI generated. You build a community based on sort of values and things that you relate with. And if it works, you can only get so far. There's the AI hype, everything is new kind of excitement. But I'm curious on on your thoughts on that. And how, how are you thinking about that?
1: I mean, on one side of it, I think like most of the AI tools right now are like glorified swap background, remove background tools. But when you think about that, like I don't, the hype is nice, but like you've been able to do that in Photoshop for decades now, like the application of that use case has been around and it never took anything away from someone who was good at Photoshop. So like the fact that these people have a different tool, these people being creatives have a different tool. Like, I don't think it takes the application or that, that end like use case in their role out of the equation. Hopefully they're producing more content. Like we just talked about, you need more content than ever before. How are you going to get it? It's still going to hopefully keep the job. And, you know, um, you know, we're, we're not backing away. We have, you know, 30 photographers hired full time and they're very busy. So, um, but we're still in phase one. Um, and I think it's going to change. I think like what will also happen is you're going to want really high quality things of your product and then you're going to insert it into different use cases, world scenes, things like that. That's not where AI is at yet. It typically takes like a 2D flat thing, cuts it out, puts it on something, you know. And I think, but they're getting better and they've gotten so much better just in the past few months. Um, I think we as a company at Suna, we have basically um, felt that we have a role in this space, even though we started with real photographers, real videographers, we still have a role in this space to make you make or to help you make beautiful content so we actually have a listing insights tool that looks at ai generated photography and it, it gives you a score and it basically says your composition's not great like it's just too ai at this point point. and i think that's become really obvious like people are looking at images and be like that's ai that's not the real thing and when you're also talking about product quality um like the high def of the product in the image that's super important like if that image doesn't look great or it's kind of manipulated and then you ship an actual product that looks completely different like your return rate's gonna suck so like you know i think we're trying to build it that no matter what it's beautiful and it's got integrity behind it so are we building remove background tools blur background tools swap this thing out and we're trying to stay ahead of the cool curve absolutely In fact, some of our top customers have access to these tools in a beta right now. Um, But we've just learned, like, you know what? Our company is built by creatives, and creatives know what good creative looks like. They actually, the best ones, never care about the tool. If the tool's a camera, if the tool's Photoshop, if the tool's something we build. Um, And so that's kind of where I I think it's all going to go. And like I said, like the SEO thing. I don't know. I thought it was going to cut out. I, I thought like my article production for a good SEO article was going to drop from like $400 an article. It's like $15 an article. But no, it's come down a little bit. But there's still so much to do to make it better. Um. So yeah, I think it's going to be
0: somewhere in between of what we think it will be uh, and what it is to that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, especially around um, what you said with soon and how you guys are thinking about uh like photos and photographers and pairing it with ai um as well i know it's like uh like netflix for example right like they cared about their end customer they didn't care about like the how or the mechanism of the delivery they were just like our customers want entertaining content so whether that's a dvd in the mail or a streaming service at the end of the day they're delivering what the customer wants so it's knowing your customer and understanding what what it is that you do and what you provide to them and not necessarily being so stuck in the way it's like, oh, they only like us because it's like a real photo or they only want us because it's an AI photo. It's like, no, like you said, they want good creative. So um, one question that I'd have for you is like, as a marketer, like you were alluding to earlier in our conversation, storytelling is such an important part of that, right? So what is the story that you're telling at Suna? How do you navigate that story? Make sure you have consistency across your channels. And as we're navigating this sort of crazy time where you've got AI generated content moving so fast and you guys were built originally as a like an in-house studio production. How are you navigating telling that story? What does that look like over the next call it five years, 10 years?
1: Yeah. Um I think it's well, we've we've changed. It our value props, because we're now introducing all these features. So now you can authenticate your galleries and everything with it, with your Amazon store, your Shopify store. Um, so now we're really understanding, like we're sitting on 4 million photos. Like that's pretty crazy. Um, and that doesn't even include all the videos that we've done on the UGC side. Right. And so in in that kind of ecosystem that's floating and everything outside of our studios, and so. We kind of have realized that hmm, we're, we actually have a stronger position, kind of in the middle of a workflow, than we thought we did, right? Um, or that we may have thought. We're not just where you're going to make content, because now you're going to keep your content on Suna, and and then we also want you to want to help you make sure that that content works and it's effective. Um, so actually, like our new timeline is Suna is where you make, manage, and measure your content with confidence. And the confidence part is also really important to us because we want you to make content that we think has a high level of quality, not just for conversion rate, but also because our founders are creatives. They had a creative agency before this. They are photographers by trade. Liz is never uh, an arm's length away from a Leica camera and is obsessed with photography. And also, like as my role, you know, I told Liz, I'm like, our brands love you and they love your voice. No matter how big we get, like you got to make sure, and we we make sure. And she'll never make, she'll never shy away from it. Like she's outspoken and has a voice in it, um, which I love as a marketer. Like I actually think I've worked at companies where the founder is a little bit shy, and that's fine. It's personal, um, but like having someone who like lives and breeds it
2: is going to be there. What so is, what is the story? I, I can't remember. I think, I don't know if Liz, oh yeah, they, Liz, when she was here on the podcast, she mentioned Rick and pulled me the other day and said, Hey, can you do the voiceover of this ad today or something like yeah. that? And she did it.
1: Yeah. I, I have her do voiceovers for our, our ads. Cause I, I think she actually has a great narration to it. And one day we'll have a voiceover AI and I'll probably have a Liz AI bot in there. It would be cool. She writes our monthly newsletter, there's never a promo, there's never a CTA. It's always our highest, not only open rate, but click through the website and like purchase days, like you have to be human. And I think you have to like live that brand um, and, and what your value prop is. Now, ultimately, like, you know, it's, it's basic. Our mission is to make the internet beautiful and we just don't want ugly stores and ugly photos out there in the world and so whether that again was taken by a photographer or by someone who used ai quickly to whip it up together we just want to make sure it's beautiful and so um i think five years from now ten years from now the tools are going to change everything's going to change you know we just saw um oh was that video app that just raised a ton of money yesterday and announced it but yeah, it's just like text pika. to video pika yeah i mean like who knows what that's going to do for for video but um the the market for producing good creative is actually growing, right? Um, is the market's not shrinking or the the money behind the volume of content is not shrinking. Um so I think there's a there's a really exciting opportunity.
2: That's then that's a good position to be in. I think um, you know, we had we recorded an episode with Ryan yesterday. His company was bought by like a newspaper company he got acquired he was he joined and he's like he we i just knew that this was a dying industry um and and it's so different um when you're operating with with those tailwinds oh, yeah. my first um, job was at new york post and i left because i'm like i'm working at a newspaper <laughs> so, yeah 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 um so i think one of my last questions as we get towards the end here is like how do you then keep that met how do you can and i don't know if control is the right word here but like how do you keep that message consistent throughout the marketing teams you have. If you're, you know, through the team that's like getting the creative, the team that's editing and writing copy, the team that's doing SEO posting on social media, um, especially as the team grows or the company grows, how do you keep that consistent?
1: Yeah. Um, honestly, I actually think you give them a lot of wiggle room. Like it's not a tight, like short leash by any means. Um, but you, you know, we're building this like you know plane right now as we're flying it. So um, I don't have like a brand book that's like you got to say this and not say that right now. Um, and in any way, like you should be testing new messaging and you should try it out and, and see if it's sticking. So look, we're small enough where I get to see probably every piece of content before it goes out the door, and and we're a hundred and thirty odd creative people. Employed at Suna, so like everyone's gonna. You work with thirty photographers full time, and also put out a paid ad, and see if you don't get good feedback on whether that was good or not. Or put a new photo on your homepage and try to get away with like that not being something that all of our photographers think is you know an amazing composition and asset. So we luckily get a lot of feedback, um, you know. But we're always testing out new things and, and trying new things. But I do think it is very important to be grounded in kind of what your value props are, what your message is, what you want consumers to feel um, and be excited by. Um, I know Suna as a brand, like we just don't take ourselves seriously uh, in the sense of like, we're super colorful, you know, be in the culture and you'll hear things like this isn't a rocket ship, it's a glitter train. And like, it's just part of who we are and then you know our designers kind of have to really think through that a little bit more but luckily you know all of their design kind of hits that hits that um hits that mark and so yeah i i you know i I don't think it's that hard (laughs) to be very honest um sometimes you're serious sometimes you're funny um the best brands are like nike like they just think about epic brand you know and the tone is completely different in a different campaign that's cool um you know uh but at the same time i don't know if we're big enough that um we figured everything out and and locked it down um uh but yeah
2: yeah very few things can be a total pr disaster um so uh, uh okay so you've been teasing the brands with like all the beta stuff we're like brands that are listening that might want to beta this stuff out see yeah. everything new that Suna is doing that, you know, the evolution from the place you make the content to the place yeah. where you measure it confidently um, and just test everything you guys are, are, you know, doing new. Yeah. where are they to go? do that.
1: Yeah. It's actually quite simple. Um, go to Suna.co and it, we changed the nav and now it says studio and it says tools. So just click on tools and you'll learn kind of what we're doing and building on the platform. If you want access, it's actually not that hard either. You come join one of our preferred packages, and all of our preferred customers are are getting access to the platform right now. Um, and so, yeah, the tools are are pretty awesome, and we're just lot, like last week we just added blur background, and it sounds simple, but like we've put a lot of effort to make sure that like, our edge detection is really good, and you know better than what we think others are doing. And so, um, there's a lot going on there. You can see listing insights, which is that score that we were talking about and editing tools um, that we're bringing, you know, purposely built for brands, whereas a lot of tools are building these tools for family photos and whatever you want to throw up there, but these are really specifically, like our ML model is trained for products um, very specifically. So yeah, it's the best place to go.
2: And then trend, how has trend
1: been? Oh, trend is amazing. It's just brought this other human level uh to the business and creativity um so sooner we acquire trend if anyone is new to Ramon in this world um but yeah i mean trend the ugc side It you know it's like we said like we just want content to be great and i don't think we ever assumed that the only good content could be produced inside four walls inside a studio and i'm actually really glad that we haven't gotten to this mode like Oh, we got we do outdoor photography now, and we scout locations and you know do things like that. But with a professional team, I'm so glad that we just went straight to creators and are just having fun there. Um, and we're actually adding more creators to the platform right now than I think we have in a, a long time. So that's uh, going to be a great opportunity for everybody
2: sweet and then Rickin I know you have a newsletter um and where can people that want to keep oh, yeah. up with all things marketing where where can they hear more from you what are the socials shout everything out oh thanks for that um i mean you could you could read my newsletter it's
1: just rickin@beehive.com uh, no i didn't put it on a paid domain uh or just you know come come at me on twitter rickin311 um r a k i n 311 uh yeah, I'm not the best personal brander kind of dude, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll mouth some things off there once in a while, so it'll be good to have fun there.
0: Sweet. Well, thanks so much for coming on the pod, Rickon. We learned a lot and, and can't wait to uh, see how you guys implement everything at Sooner and continue taking care of uh, Trend and scaling that one up as well.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, thanks for everything. Thanks for having me. It was a good chat.
0: Thank you, Rickon. Thanks for tuning in. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond follow and subscribe to the show and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter, visit us on DTCpod.com to join our founder community and access
2: resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.